0: I want to say, first of all, it is a privilege to be here. I make it a daily practice to pray for this church, and I, I do so when I'm running up in front of Chick-fil-A on the Gulf to Bay Boulevard. And so I uh, make that as a, uh, as, a, as a point in practice where I'm praying for, for uh, Daniel and for his wife and for their daughter and then for Stephen and his wife and their son and so forth and and so why do i do that because i consider it a privilege to partner with you in the ministry that god is doing here at grace bible church and so that that's why i do that uh, and uh, so I, I i'm not just giving you something that ha- you know that would oh, be nice to do i'm telling you exactly when if you ever see some crazy looking guy running up before sunrise uh, on Gulf to Bay Boulevard uh, that is who I am okay but uh, that's part of what I'm doing and so it's a it's a great privilege to be here now why was i hesitant for a nanosecond because on sunday nights i lead the worship service at my church at the church where we attend and so it was a point of uh, when I was asked, what would you be doing Sunday night? I said, well, I'll, I'll be, be at our church. Uh, uh, and, and when I was asked, though, it was one of those points of uh, you're to be ready in season and out of season. And so I was instructed to simply go through and give what I give in class, and I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Many of us are familiar with the book of Isaiah, and we're familiar with the idea of Isaiah's call in Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, and please note as we hear the word of God together, in Isaiah chapter 6, and we notice verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. and The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is God's word, it is holy, inerrant, and inspired. It is written by God and written for us, that we might know what to believe, that we might know how to live, and on its pages we might meet the living Christ. May we pray together. We are before you, O God, and your word is before us. We realize that this is ink and paper or it's a digital screen for some folks who are here. But our God, I pray that tonight your word would become living and active and powerful in our lives, and that we would leave here as people who know that we have met with you. Do in us and through us what only you can do for your glory and for your namesake. And I pray that you would bring clarity to our thinking that you would open our hearts to believe and to embrace what you call us to be and to do, and then that we might truly flesh that out in our lives to please and honor you. I ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In this passage that is often utilized in terms of a call to missionary service, I'm going to disagree with that and challenge that because it is not really a call to missionary service here. If we simply start with Isaiah 6 and this call, we miss the larger context. In Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the call of Isaiah is situated in the midst of a sequence of events. If you go back with me to the start of Isaiah chapter 6, you take note it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, exalted, with the the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, you say, okay, why in the world would you identify something as a place marker at the death of someone? Well, that is kind of a a different sort of a situation. Uh, And yet, when somebody significant in your life has died that does become a distinctive place marker for you. Go back with me to the first chapter of, of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, you take note, it says, The vision of Isaiah, verse 1, the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Ahaz, and Hezekiah kings of Judah here was a man who lived and labored in the midst of four kings and as such the place identifier is King Uzziah now what's the big point in terms of King Uzziah well remember the King Uzziah At the end of his life, and I'm sure that you you know a fair amount of Old Testament because of being under uh, the teaching ministry here. So uh, the point is that at the final years of his life, remember that here was a man who had barged in to the temple. He had barged in and said, I'm going to offer a sacrifice. And there were 80 priests that withstood him and said, don't do it. No, 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 don't do it. And Uzziah had been a godly king for about 50 years. And in this period of time, he said, I am the king. I'm going to do what I want to do. Get out of my way. And he went in, and he barged in, and he offered the offering. Oh, he was successful? Uh, No, he wasn't. He was successful in overriding 80 priests. But then God smote him with leprosy. And he spent the final years of his life as a man who was pushed out, uh, as a man who was an outcast, and he was shut out from the opportunity to really rule, to have access to the people, because he had barged in on something that had not been his. So Isaiah 6 is set in the context of the death of King Uzziah. But Isaiah 6 is not just said in the context of King Uzziah, it is said in the context of the whole context of verse five or chapter 5. So please back up with me to Isaiah chapter 5. One of the very first messages that I ever preached, 1973, was on Isaiah chapter 5 and the opening verses of it. I really didn't have a clue at that point, as an 18-year-old, of the magnitude of what Followed, but I was captivated as a farm kid in terms of what it said in the opening verses. Follow with me in Isaiah 5, verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness but behold a cry of distress and then if you move through the next verses you move through verse 8 through the end of the chapter you find a series of six woes he begins by talking about the matter of their greed and as a result there's going to be the economic breakdown he says that they're going to go out and they're going to plant one measure. Of of grain, in ten acres, and instead of getting at least ten measures back, they're going to get one tenth of that measure that they planted. Now, now, just just think with me for a moment. Anybody here do any farming or gardening? Okay, if you go out and you and you take a pack of seeds out, okay, to plant, are you expecting to get more back? Then you plant, yeah. Now, if you own, if you planted a pack of hundred seeds and your total crop equaled ten seeds, would that be very encouraging for you? Do you understand the dynamic? Okay, you plant one hundred. You're planning to get thousands back, and you get ten back. You you, you kind of want to hang it up on terms of farming and gardening, except that's what he said economically. Now, let's see. When you work through that, and he talks about the, the, the breakdown of justice, the breakdown of the spiritual leadership, and he says that all across, the people who were supposed to be identified as the godly people in that day and time, there had been, Six areas of breakdown. I'm not going to take the time to go through all of those, but I challenge you to go through and look at the six woes that are pronounced in Isaiah chapter 5. And he comes to the end of it, and he talks about this whole circumstance that was epitomized with Uzziah's leprosy. That here the most godly leader had become ungodly and was leprous and was shut out. Now, as you work through all of those, the message that comes down is things were in a major crisis. The answer that God gives then. In that breakdown, in terms of economic, social, spiritual, and the collapse of all those things that that people had come to to look up to, and then the matter, the, he promises in verse 26. He says that there's a distant nation that's going to come, and and, and, and they're not going to be hindered. They're going to come. They're going to capit- they, They're going to overtake the the people of Israel, take them off into captivity. They would be carried away into ruin. So it's a a major breakdown situation. And and so you pick up with me at verse 30. And it shall growl over it in the day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. In that bleak, dark, heart-rending situation, Isaiah is confronted with a vision of God. And it's in the vision of God that you come with the unfolding there where God points out in terms of the corruption, in terms of the the negation of things spiritual in that area. So pick up with me in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him. For I am ruined, or the older translation says, I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, and which he had taken from the altar with tongues, and he touched my mouth, and with it said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Notice with me, in this context of the breakdown, the answer for the people of Israel of that day was still that there is a God in heaven who rules, there is a God in heaven who reigns, and there is a God in heaven with whom we must give account. In that circumstance, he has this vision. He comes to grips with God. It doesn't say that he gets to see God. He sees the seraphim. And, and as he sees the seraphim, notice they, they, they cover their feet. The point is, they understand the pattern and the path of direction. No, they're not going to go their own way. They want to go in the way to please and honor God. He, he t- You take note further... He sees this smoke, so he can't. He, he he sees this overwhelming experience, but he can't encounter it because the smoke is there and it blocks his vision. He can't see, it, but he's aware that he's in the presence of God, and the fire is a symbol in the Old Testament of judgment. He comes face to face with the judgment of God, and he doesn't say, "Well, I'm a jolly good fellow. Why shouldn't I be up uh, front and center?" Instead, he says. I am a wretched sinner. I am undone. I am ruined. I am speechless. I have no access to you. And one of the seraphim takes the tongs, and the fire that comes, instead of destroying him, touches his lips and cleanses him. Now, notice what he had said. He said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Their confession, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it's it's in that whole sequence of things where when the message comes to him and when he is confronted, notice he is not destroyed, he is forgiven. Now, entering into the ministry, is one of those things that people like to look at and say my wouldn't it be nice to have a job where you only work one day a week <laughs> you know uh, what are you doing the other six days hey what's it like to have six days off and you only work one day a week man wouldn't it be nice you live in a nice pastorium or parsonage or a nice manse, as the presbyterians identify it you live in a manse. Uh, it's a house, okay? But, but, but you see, all, all of those things, my, the perks. Oh, what an incredible thing. And you have all these people, and you pass the plate around, and you get to collect all that money and put it in your pot. Wow! That is much of the attitude that is expressed by many people in terms of entering the ministry. I want to challenge you that the realities of what Isaiah encountered in Isaiah 6 are not callings to missionary service in a foreign mission field. They are callings to ministry in the midst of a breaking down and broken down society. Do you have to look very far to find a breaking down and broken down society today? Anybody? Did you have to look very far? For us to get here tonight, we drove across the Courtney Campbell Causeway. The Courtney Campbell Causeway was absolutely choked with people, not headed to church. And I doubt that they were in church this morning. It was choked with people there for their opportunity to have a day at the beach, a day at the side of the bay, or whatever you want to call it. There's not a whole lot of beach there along Courtney Campbell Causeway. But it was absolutely choked with people. It took us a full 30 minutes to go from one side of the of, of, of the Tampa Bay to the other side. And no accidents along the way. But see, I was reminded as, I, as we sang in this last song, we yearned to see churches full, we yearned to see the houses full of people Worshipping and honoring and loving the Lord. But wait a minute. Do we simply curse the darkness? Or do we say, Oh God, raise up those who are willing to say, We are going to go and faithfully serve the Lord in being a light in the midst of a darkened world. That is, is the confrontation that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6. As we went further, notice that God did not promise him, Isaiah, you are going to have a mega church, and you're going to have thousands of people dropping, and you know they're going to hook up to your iPods, and they're going to want to get your podcast, and they're going to want to be on your website, and they're going to want to subscribe to your tapes. Notice what it says as you go on in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah says, I hear this voice, whom shall I send to this broken down, messed up society where things are in disarray, where economics are falling apart, where morals are in horrible shambles? Whom shall I send? Then it said, I, here am I, send me. And he said, go. Go and tell this people. And then notice what he says. Keep on listening. Now, he's not telling Isaiah, make the message obtuse. Make it really hard for them to understand. Make it so that it's used in language that is way off in the clouds and they have to plug in and and get a special uh, translator in order to understand it. No, he says, Go and keep telling them, and tell them again, and tell them again, and tell them again. Keep going and telling them. That's what he says. Keep on listening. Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their... The point is, he says, Isaiah... Don't you dare let the error be on your part of failing to communicate my message to them. You say, well, 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 Isaiah was this great prophet of the Old Testament, and and, uh, there's a lot of profound theology in the book of Oh, yeah, there's profound theology. But go with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, notice this message that Isaiah gives in terms of what you're to do, and uh, uh, these words are used in Handel's Messiah, and and, and this message of John the Baptist, and so on, but I want you to drop down with me to verse 7. Well, verse 6, a voice says, call out, then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain. O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, lift it up. Do not fear, say to the cities... Here is your God. You see, he's saying, Go and introduce people to God. Go to the, look for avenues. Go to the people and tell them, Here is who God is, and here's who you need to know. And he goes through those wonderful verses that you find in terms of the theology that unfold in Isaiah 40. But go with me to, to the very end, a verse that you're probably familiar with, verse 31. Well, verse 30 and 31, Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired, and they will walk and not become weary. Any of you have a a, a verse that you really enjoy out of the book of Isaiah? I mean, there are lots of them. But now notice what the attitude was of his contemporaries about his ministry. Go with me to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. Isaiah has begun in Isaiah 28 giving a message about the northern kingdom, about their sin and their rebellion against the Lord. And in doing so, he has uh, announced God's displeasure... With the north and the people of the southern kingdom are all gathered around there saying, Go for it, men. Let them have it. Yes, that's right. They are wicked and they are awful people. That's right. But notice what he says. He turns in verse 6. Uh, yes, uh, let's pick up at verse 6. A spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment and the strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. And, and, and so it, to this point he's talking about the northern kingdom now... Verse seven, he turns the attention on the ones that are sitting around him and he says, And these reel with wine and stagger from drunk, from from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink, and they are confused by wine and they stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment, for the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Isaiah, it was okay when you were preaching against those other people, when you were announcing how nasty they were. Isaiah, you're out of bounds to say anything against us. Notice what they say in verse nine. To whom would he teach knowledge, and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just wean from milk, do do little babies. And those that that have just been taken from the breast, for he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. The words in the Hebrew are actually do and do, do and do, do and do, do and do, and do like you teach a little baby. Okay? Like you're teaching Elena. Okay? Yeah. Do and do, do. I mean, it's not that you know her daddy doesn't come along and say, "Now, Elena, I want you to understand this profound theological lesson." I'm sure that I'm sure that you're teaching her plenty, but I, you work on very basics, right? That's the accusation they had against Isaiah. Isaiah. Who do you think you are? Or, 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 well, you're only qualified to teach kindergartners or infants, you know, those that have just been taken from mama's breast and do and do, do and do, do. And, ah, yes, Isaiah, that's the level. And how did Isaiah's ministry end? We understand from history that Isaiah, in fleeing from King Manasseh, hid in a hollow tree. And Manasseh knew of that and had the tree cut, sawed asunder with him in it. Now, I hope that your pastor is not sawn asunder. But the reality is that we live in a day of increasing hostility toward the gospel ministry. And the reality is that the call to the ministry is a call that says, I am under obligation to give the message whether I feel like it or not. I've got to give it. And so there's a a real aspect in which we end up being taken a hold of and pressed in to the circumstance of service. Now, you take note, though, as we have already seen in Isaiah 6, it was not a matter where Isaiah was zapped in some special way. God said, who will go? And Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. There is the internal reas- uh, the internal response. There's the awareness of the need. And there is the response in terms of the cumulative thing that God does in thrusting a person into the ministry. So let me note now the s- several things that I do identify in class. And um, so the first is that the mi- call to ministry is a call from God. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1 Verse nine. Second Timothy chapter one and verse nine. Let me back up to verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. So my first statement is, a call to the ministry is a call from God. It is not simply, I recall when I was in high school, I was sitting down in the guidance counselor's office, and they asked me, he said, so what do you plan to do when you graduate from high school? Here, here's a list of things, check off, and, and, and none of them was the call to the ministry. And I said, I'm planning to go into the pastorate. He said, oh, he said, that's not one of those that you check off. He said, how did you come to choose that? Well, I said, I didn't really come to choose that. And I remember Mr. Gray looking at me and saying, really? How did that come to pass? Well, I'll tell you just a little bit in terms of my own experience in that. When I was two years of age, my grandfather died. But prior to his death in 1957, I am told, I remember seeing him, but I am told that he looked out and he said, there is my little Billy Graham. Someday he's going to be a preacher. I didn't know this. But uh, I was aware in terms of, uh, as, as, as a little kid, I would remember when I was three, one day, my wife, or my, my wife, my mother, excuse me, my mother, yeah, I wasn't married at age three. Uh, my mother was ironing clothes. And I remember sitting on a little rocking chair, and I was rocking, and I said, Mom, do you know what I want to do when I grow up? She said, No. I said, I, I want to be a preacher. I was three years of age. You say, Well, what do you know at age three? Obviously, not a whole lot. I was sitting with some students on Friday, and they asked. Uh, uh, so they said, "You've been in school all of your life." I said, "No." I said, "Not for the first six years." They said, "How old are you?" I said, "I'm 56." They said, "You mean you've been going to school for 50 years?" Uh, yeah, just about. Okay, so uh, that's that's the reality on those things. But so no, I didn't know a whole lot at age three. Okay, I, I'm, I'm freely acknowledge that, but. Here's a book, you can see it's a book, OK? You can see it's a book. But I have it's written in the front of it, November 18, 1958. That's a little while ago, OK? That's a little while ago. I was at a Bible conference, and the president of Wheaton College, V. Raymond Edmond, was speaking. V. Raymond Edmond was sitting at the front And he was selling books after he would spoken. He was selling books, and uh, he was autographing them for people that were interested. I had my Bible, uh, you know, and our practice was as kids at that time that that you would go and you would get this famous speaker to sign your Bible. So here I am. Is there anybody here age three? Anybody three years of age? All right. There you have one with a Wheaton shirt on, no less. Okay. Uh, All right. I was his age. So so look there, okay. I was his age. And I walked to the front, and V. Raymond Edmonds said to me, he said, go get your parents. Now my parents were like any other parents. They were, you know, busy after a meeting and talking and fellowshipping because these, this Bible conference was a number of churches from that particular area in southwestern Pennsylvania that would get together once a, once a month uh, for this uh, Bible conference, to, uh, the, the third Monday and Tuesday of, of the month. And they've been doing that for more than 50 years. Yeah, obviously more than 50 years. now. But anyway, the point was they were doing it for a long time. But... I was his age and I go back and I pull on my dad's coat and I said dad the speaker wants to talk to you my dad is thinking oh no what did he say so dad and mom come forward and they wait their turn and so I here I am with my dad and mother waiting in line to talk to this man and the man that night Wrote his name in the front of this book, and he signed it down here at the bottom and wrote Nahum 17 in it. And he gave it to my parents, and he said, I want you to take this home and keep this for when this boy grows up, he said, because I believe that he's going to one day be a preacher, and this book will be of help to him. Now, what in the world did he know or I know at that point in time? So, you see, that's where I, I what, what I'm going to say in a few moments, I want you to understand there's some challenging things in that. When I was baptized at age seven, uh, I, water baptism by immersion, one time backward, okay, I was in the, in, in the, the, a Baptist church, so I was baptized one time backward by immersion, all right, so those of you who are trine immersionists no i have not been bap- i've not been fully baptized if you hold it it's got to be trine immersion but i was baptized but i remember lewis hunter that night saying i'm glad carl waited to be last to be baptized tonight he said because i believe that one day he's going to be in the ministry and i'm glad that he wants to make known his commitment to follow jesus christ i'm a little kid what do I know any seven-year-olds here okay no seven-year-olds here okay well you, you, you can you can frame it okay and understanding that but when I got into high school the last thing I wanted to be was in the ministry and I remember it was before I'd gone to see our guidance counselor you had this mandatory meeting with him in high school I remember standing in my uncle's barn and looking up at the, the cows that I was helping to milk and saying, God, let's forget this thing of me going into the ministry. I'm going to commit myself to being a farmer in Fayette County and I have my farm all tractor and I'm going to be the best farmer and I'll help everybody I can in Fayette County. Two weeks to the day I was going to pick corn for my dad. I gotten a corn picker. I mean, I was a teenager, but I got a corn picker, got it back in operation, and and I was going to pick this field of corn for my dad to help my dad. And um, I'm riding on my farm old tractor, and I I went to go to my uncle, another uncle's place, to get a wagon to put the corn in. You know, I'm, 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 I'm... Flying across the field on my tractor, and I realized I'd forgotten the SMV sign. Now, that's a triangular reflecting sign that is required, uh, it became required that year for tractors that were on the road, they had to have the SMV sign on. So, okay, I go to turn around, and the tractor, I was going too fast, the tractor turned over side to side. If any of you are familiar with farm equipment, you, uh, you understand that most people who ever have that experience simply are killed. The steering wheel simply cuts their head off. I remember as the tractor had flipped over, I looked up and here is this big tractor tire coming down on my head just as the magneta shut off. It stopped. I mean literally that far away from my head. I got up, and my God, there was a red farm all tractor, was destroyed. The running gears of it still sit at the farm today. But I remember that day of saying, Oh God, I have rebelled against you. I will go and prepare for the ministry. I'm a hard-headed person, (laughs) and God has to get my attention, and He certainly got it. But I came to Clearwater after going to a different college. I I mean, the very next day, I had had my application to go to a Bible college, and I'd had it and had it and had it, and said, "No, I'm not going to. I'm going to be this farmer." The next day, I put it in the mail. I get to that college, and I find out that their theology was really wacko theology. I left. I hitchhiked across the state of Florida to Clearwater. Because while I was there, people said to me, they said, oh, they said, the last place you want to go is this Clearwater Christian College. They said, there are even students that will come out of there who believe in Calvinism. At that point I really didn't know what Calvinism was. I had no clue of those things. But the more they told me about this place that I should never go, the more I thought I better get there. So I literally hitchhiked up the Alligator Alley and all this stuff through. I saw lots of orange trees and so on, but I praise the Lord I got to Clearwater. And in the time there, it was 1973 when a pastor in Clearwater I went there on a Sunday evening. A pastor said, young man, I don't know who you are, but I believe that God's got his hand on your life and you need to prepare for for preaching. He said, I want you to prepare a message for two weeks from tonight. Okay. And that was the message on Isaiah 5 that I brought that night. I was 18 years of age. Some years later, I was... uh, uh, I preached in a number of places, but because I had not gone to a particular college in Greenville, South Carolina, I was not allowed to do anything at my home church. And I was not allowed to pray. I was not allowed to do anything. I was shut out. Okay. Dr. Steele calls me into his office one day in 1976, and he said, "Uh, What are you going to do? This summer, he says, I, I know you're supposed to be on campus and working. He says, what, do you, what are you going to do? He says, there's a church that needs somebody to preach. Would you be willing to fill the pulpit for them? And I said, yeah, sure, I'd be glad to. He said, good. Now I need to tell you. He said, it's just 120 miles away. 120 miles away? He said, you're going to get out on Highway 19, and you're going to drive, and you're going to think you missed the place. But he says, you've got to keep on driving, and you'll get there. Mark Samick knows where that is because he and my brother went there uh, after I had graduated from from the college. I was preaching at Trinity Community Church in Chiefland, Florida, and they called me as their interim pastor. I was commuting every week. And David Otis Fuller came to the campus, and uh, he was a, a, a fellow from Wealthy Street Baptist Church in Detroit, And he came one night, he was walking around the the campus with his wife, and he said to me, he says, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, well, I said, I'm planning to prepare for the ministry. Are you 100% sure that you're called? And he's yelling at me like that. And I said, no, get out. Well, I decided that I wasn't going to resign because I was supposed to preach the next Sunday in Chiefland. And so I cannot tell you that I've ever had some experience where something was written in the sky. But I can tell you that at point after point in my life, when I have said, "Uh, Lord, let's just hang this up. I'll go do something else. The Lord has consistently said, no way. I was offered a position once to be the head of a company. And the man told me, he said, I, I can tell you, he said, within six months, you will be a millionaire, Carl. He says, all you have to do, are you willing to accept this? I'm willing to sign this over to you. And I went and talked to my seminary professors at Biblical Seminary. And several of them said, I mean, that's, I was a single guy and, and, and so on. And, and uh, they said, well, he said, you know, you could get on seminary board boards of Christian ministries. You could contribute lots of money. You could do a lot of things. What would you do? And I said, okay. I went back and I got alone before the Lord. and was a point of just a strong compelling of saying, there is a world that is lost, and I want you to go to them and proclaim my word to them. And I turned that down. Some years later, I had that man's funeral. And uh, he was brutally murdered and and so on. But I have no regret that I turned away. But some years later, I was in the pastoral ministry. And things had been pretty tough. We had a time where a group of people in the church had said, we want you out. And the denomination called me and said, you have 10 days to prepare to get out. I said, well, there's due process. I said, uh, here's what I'm to submit to the elders, and and, and, and so I said, if they rule such, I will, I will leave. I called a ministry that had begged me to come and to join them and to work with them and to teach for them and to help them. And I called them at that time, and they said, you know, they said, what we really want you to do is we want you to become our fundraiser in the United States. Just a couple days before that, one of the founders of Clearwater Christian College had died, and uh, or he'd, he'd gone into nursing care. And he had, I'd gotten some of his books, and here was a book that I per adventure pulled off the shelf. It was a book on the life of Sam Jones. I opened the front of it, and here is written in Jack Murray's handwriting. He says, "Oh God, ten years serving as fundraiser for X Y Z Ministry." I feel like I have lost the fire and the passion of proclaiming your word. Oh, God, would you be merciful and give me back the fire? Was that coincidental that I opened it on that day that I had to make a decision? Are you going to leave the pastorate or become the fund and become the fundraiser? Ah, oh, that wasn't coincidental. It was on that day that I was gripped by the fact of saying, don't make that mistake. And so that's where I share in terms of a practical way of saying that a call of ministry is from God. Number two, and I, I will th- th- these will not be as long, okay? Number two, God's call is according to his own purposes and grace. We've just read that in Second Timothy chapter one. I, I think in terms of the various calls that are given in the scripture, you have Bezalel, who was called to be a craftsman. And he was called to be a craftsman. So not everybody that's called in the scripture is called to be in ministry. But then you take Jeremiah was called before he was born. He says, even while God says to him, even while you're in your mother's womb, Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Moses was called at age 40. Well, excuse me, actually, he was actually closer to age 80, and he's on the backside of the desert when God called him into the ministry. He had a dramatic experience at the burning bush, and he was called. Amos was a farmer. He was a a, a herdsman and also a, a raiser of cucumber fruit, And he said to the people who said to him, Amos, go home. We don't want to hear what you have to say. He said, if God hadn't grabbed a hold of me and put me into the ministry, I would be down on the farm. Paul, in Romans chapter 1 and in many other places, speaks about being called into the ministry. But I, I want to just take a moment and look at one other person here. Look with me at Timothy in Acts chapter 16. What dramatic experience did Timothy have? Acts chapter 16. Look at verse 1. And he came also to to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in daily number. What happened with Timothy? Paul said, come with me. And he went. Number three. Okay. Number one, a call to the ministry is from God. Number two, God's call is according to his own purposes and grace. Number three, God equips the one that that he calls, and he, call, he equips us for that calling that he has given to us. I will not take time to elaborate on that at the moment, but I would simply remind you that God knows exactly what he wants you to do, and he will prepare you for that i'm going to leave a copy of this paper that dr Steele uh gives to or gave to us he's now home with the lord so i don't have him that i can tap and say come speak to my uh, class any longer um and but i'm going to leave you a copy of of his paper uh, that will be of help in terms of understanding that but number four as god calls us He enables us to conform to His will. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church And in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever, amen. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And then one other reference, Jude, verses 24 and 25. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I share these last two verses as these reminders. I recall when I was in college there were a number of individuals who were absolutely sure that they'd had an experience that God had called them into the ministry. And I've watched one after another that ended up on the casualty list. My fear was that I would become a casualty like they. But One of the great encouragements to me was Jude, verses 24 and 25. If God calls you to serve him in the ministry and thrust you forward into that responsibility, he is the one who is able to enable you and keep you from falling day after day, year after year, decade after decade. For His glory. Let's have a word of prayer, and then I will open it for questions uh, in terms of things that you you desire. Lord, we do not take lightly your working, even in bringing me to be in this place tonight, and it well may be that you are calling men in this very room, even young men, very young men, to serve in vocational ministry, to invest their lives in teaching and proclaiming your word in the midst of a breaking and broken world. May we not be rebellious against you. And God, I pray for those who who you have laid your hand upon them and you are calling them. God, may they not turn away from this, but may you indeed prepare them, equip them, and enable them. And I pray that indeed your church will be filled. I pray that you would be pleased to call people to salvation through Jesus Christ and that you would call people to serve in oversight and leadership, to advance the work of your church in our day, in our world, at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.